the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, I'll be chatting with Mark Stevens, Managing Director at Arakan, about his views on a number of topics relating to Army in the post-DSR world. Mark, welcome back once again to the show. Hi Grant, uh, good to be here again. Um, only seems like a couple of weeks ago since we spoke. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a number of months, I know, and there's been a lot that's gone on, obviously, since we spoke last time. So, you know, very keen to cover what we can in the time that we've got available today. Exactly. Uh, yeah, who knew so much could be packed into two or three months, but uh, the world's done it to us. So first up, the really big news is, of course, uh, that Land 400 has been awarded to Hanwha. So Hanwha Defence Australia will be building 129 of their infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on this? Yeah, look, I think it was a great contest. Uh, obviously, it took far too long. Uh, you know, everyone feels that way, I'm sure. It's interesting, you know, I think that the uh, Redback is a fantastic vehicle and was built from the ground up to the ADF's specifications. It, it is interesting that just in the last couple of weeks, we've had the US make its decision around the Rheinmetall vehicle uh, for the US. Uh, you know, I'm sure there would have been conversations between uh, both defence forces or both armies around uh, those decisions. Look, I think um, the Redback is a fantastic vehicle. It is leading the way in a number of technologies, some of which are in the public domain, probably some of which aren't at this stage, but, you know, which I think will become apparent uh, in the near future. But, um, you know, I think on balance, given the vibration challenges that uh, that Ron Mattel had, that had the hand-wire vehicle is the better choice for this, our circumstances. And I think, you know, what it does do is it gives a whole lot of Australian companies an opportunity to contribute to a global supply chain. You know, if uh, Hanwire, if it's true what Hanwire is saying about all of the Redbacks being built in the Geelong facility once it's up and running, then it could be the biggest defence industry announcement in Australia for decades as far as the amount of work that's available for defence industry. So on that score, I think they, you know, Hanwire had probably a more complete solution for Australian industry. So from an industry perspective, I think it's the best result as well. Well, it's also interesting, as you said, about Hanwha building in their plant at Avalon near Geelong. Mm. But uh, they'd actually said that regardless of what the outcome was, they were going to be building that plant and they needed plant number three because of the number of countries all around the world who are clamouring for their various products. So uh, what are your views on that? Yeah, I had a conversation with Richard Cho back in January where he, we spoke about that and, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting watching what Hanwha is doing. So I think geopolitically, obviously, South Korea is in a very sort of interesting situation. You've got, um, a, you know, a country larger the same uh, with the same population as ours separated from China and Russia by North Korea and a decision by Hanwha to offshore a lot of its manufacturing is a strategic one based on the risk. And so it's fantastic that they chose Australia as one of those locations. Um, you know, I think the interesting thing for the Army is that the order might be for 129 vehicles now, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that there'll be more ordered in the fullness of time. And I think the challenge for us will be that 
those vehicles are being manufactured here in Australia. But just because we want more doesn't mean we go to the front of the queue. And so uh, we just need to be, I think, very, very conscious of the fact that of the timelines that are involved. Uh, you know, there, I think there'll be three halls there at uh, the, the Hanwha facility for manufacturing. But we just need to be conscious of the fact that because it is a global supply chain and production line, that an order by Australia doesn't constitute, um, you know, a, an immediate order. And uh, we'll just need to factor that into our thinking. But whichever way it goes, Grant, you know, fantastic result for those 68-odd companies that are in the Hanwha supply chain. I'm just looking at it. I've got a photo in front of me here of, um, of all of the logos on a board. I think it was at Avalon. Um, you know, heaps of, uh, of great Australian companies in uh, that group, like Dingo and um, Built and Millspec and Penton and um, Naya and EOS, obviously, and a whole range of different businesses, AME. Uh, so, you know, uh, just, you know, a fantastic result for all those guys. Yeah, certainly helping local industry as, as well. So that's great. So coming back to Army, uh, mm. last time we were talking about the impacts of the DSR and the the changes that were going to have to happen to the, the force. So they've had a few months more now. They've had the months before the public release and now the months since. Uh, so how are they adapting to the changes? Well, you would have seen the announcement about the combat brigades going back under command of the 1st Australian Division. And mm -hmm. um, I did reflect on this, you know, in my 40-odd years that I've been in and around Army, that we've had this pendulum swinging, you know, the brigades under command of the division and they're not under command. And, um, I, you know, I think Army's challenge is more complex than that and I'm confident that there is a lot of work being done behind the scenes because a number of those brigades are quite hollow as far as their capability is concerned as well and that has to be addressed. And I know uh, the Chief uh, the chief of Army, Simon Stewart, you know, has worked and his team are working hard on that. The Chief of Army Symposium is on in, at the end of August. So, you know, I think there'll be quite a bit of conversation around that uh, event and then we can expect probably some announcements, some gradual announcements about how the force is going to be reset um, we are waiting on some more announcements, of course. You know, Land 8710 being probably the most significant one. Um, and I think that will uh, that'll have an impact on 1 and 3 Brigade in particular about what their force posture looks like because those the, the mediums and the heavy uh, ship in particular, or ships plural, are going to be based in Darwin and Townsville, uh, obviously adjacent to those two brigades. And so... There is a real opportunity there to think, you know, quite differently about what the construct of a combat brigade looks like within the land force. And so um, it will be interesting to see what they do, but there, there does need to be some substantial change made and some significant decisions, obviously, before those changes. Um, and literal manoeuvre, you know, rep represents probably one of the biggest opportunities and challenges for Army you know, for some time, and I think you can expect that uh, Simon Stewart will be all over it, uh, Richard Vag and Scott Winter and um, Susan Coyle and others who are in the decision chain on all that, but we, I, I think we'll end up with something which is pretty exciting, but it's going to take a bit more time is my, uh, is my sense. 
So do you see it becoming more like the US Marines with the ability to storm the beach and take and establish beachheads and so on? Look, uh, Albert Palazzo uh, released a really good article, This I think it was this week or late last week, about um, you know the Indo-Pacific is, contr- is going to be controlled from the land. And I think that uh, that's worth reading. It, it, I think, does give a sense for the direction that Army's going in. You know, I think as we've discussed before, the Marine Corps was very clever in the way in which they decided to um, change themselves. And so they, you know, they've done that. And um, I think there are a lot of interesting decisions that they've made, which will absolutely be part of our force posture going forward. We, we don't have the luxury of a separate army, though, which the Marine Corps has. So we've got to maintain some of those heavy components, you know, tanks, heavy artillery, and uh, obviously infantry fighting vehicles, which the Marine Corps has been able to move away from. So I think it'll, it, it, it will resemble some of those decisions that uh, the Marine Corps has made. And I think Talisman Sabre was a bit of a was a bit of an indicator for that. So, you know, you would have noticed just the amount of um, combined country operations that were a feature of Talisman Sabre and working through those command arrangements and getting that interoperability right. So I think, yeah, I think there will be, uh, it'll be more a more mobile force, but it's also going to be a force which is more capable of being able to work at much shorter notice with our neighbours and peers in our region than what we've ever done before. And I think that's probably the great learning out of the Talisman Sabre experience. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think there's lots of change to come. And how long do you think that's going to take? You indicated it's going to take a while. Uh, we're going from being the current army to something, that, not replicating the Marines, but it, it gets closer to that concept. So how long? A good question. There seems to be some reticence to move until the IIP is produced. And I think that's going to be late. So I don't think we're going to see the IIP this calendar year. I think it will be quarter one next calendar year. Uh, uh, I know in my you know conversations across defence that uh, people have got money to spend, but they're reticent to do so until the IIP is settled. And I'm, I'm thinking that Army probably needs to wait Similarly, until such time as they get a much clearer picture from VCDF uh, around, you know, what we can afford to fund before there's a final announcement made on a whole range of those different uh, decisions around force structure and around capability. So I think it's going to be, it'll be the end of quarter one next calendar year, I think, before we see anything substantive. Uh, so that, that, that would be my bet. And there's going to be a lot wanting to get that cut of that money pie hmm. in terms of Navy, and I'm not just talking about the, the submarines here because they're sort of in their own separate bucket, but you've got the Navy with their ships, not just sustainment, but the new platforms, Air Force with their sustainment and and bedding in a couple of new items. So how, how do you see the pie breakup going? Someone made a comment to me last week when I was in Canberra that, that the senior leadership in defence is spending all their time trying to work out what not to fund. <laughs> yes. You know, and I think that's a really difficult position to be in. It's very destructive of energy and morale and focus, and that's where they're at right now. So it, it's, you know, it's certainly a race. Um, you know, there, there, uh, there is an investment committee on today, 
15th of August. I know there's some stuff going up, joint force stuff, which is going up for, for decision. So it, it hasn't, the whole thing hasn't, you know, absolutely stopped. But I think there's a lot more work to be done yet, you know, along the lines of what's not going to be funded before, you know, we get some clarity as a consequence of that about, you know, what's in as far as, uh, you know, support is concerned. Um, and I think that's going to take, you know, uh, it's going to take quite a bit of time because, you know, quite rightly, as you point out, the, the ADF's pivoting. And, you know, when you do that, it, it it exposes a whole lot of weaknesses in relation to what you can't do but need to do as far as the new direction and new focus is concerned. So that'll be another overlay which needs to be factored into uh, those conversations and thinking over the next few months. Okay, so we've got uh, potential changes, the pivot, the DSR fallout, so to speak, uh, army restructuring, AUKUS, all sorts of things going on. How do you see the impacts being now, three months later since last our chat, on the local defence industry from all these changes? I think life's hard for defence industry at the moment. And, you know, I think we might have said on the last podcast, you know, our view is that Australian industry starts to play in the new DSR environment when the funding's at over 2.5% of GDP. So we're, we're a fair way off that. Uh, decisions like Land 400 Phase 3 help, um, you know, we're going to see, uh, you know, just to come back to that, um, one of the things that I meant to mention was that, you know, Hanwai is going to be bringing 60-odd engineers from South Korea to Australia uh, to be dropped into those companies to help them sort of be the manufacturing force that Hanwai needs them to be, and that's a massive investment and uh, vote of confidence in Australian defence industry. So I think life's going to be pretty good for those guys who are in that supply chain. I, I think more broadly, you know, we still have a view that uh, Pillar 1 is the best short-term opportunity for Australian defence industry. Uh, there are mass- there's massive opportunities in the global Virginia-class supply chain, which um, Hunter and Ingalls and Electric Boat are looking to get coverage for by Australian companies. Uh, so, yeah, that's, a, that's an opportunity that exists right now. Uh, pillar two will be it will be slower uh, to materialise. I think you know it's great news that Hypersonics, uh, you know the Australian uh, company, has picked up a fairly significant grant from the Defence Innovation Unit in the US. You know, sixty odd million US dollars uh, to progress its work. So there are some glimmers of uh, of uh, positiveness uh, for Australian defence industry, but by and large, I, you know. There's there's not a lot on the table right now, um, and I think if you look at you know we've got a Guio review as well, Grant uh, obviously the surface ship review, all those things uh, there'll be decisions this year I think uh, the infrastructure review there'll be decisions on all those this year, but effectively there won't be any activity until next year next calendar year, and even then I think it's going to take some time before we things start to mobilise so. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of good news for Australian defence industry in the immediate term, and, and that's that's got to be a concern for everyone, um, because you know, in the future, if we do have um, a situation where we we have armed conflict, then really the first thing we'll need to do is turn inward to be able to support the force, and and my concern is that uh, the depth won't be there. 
uh, that even we might have had just a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that some of those decisions will be fast-tracked and, and you know, we can start, you know, building out, you know, a, a lot more Australian uh, defence industry capability. But, you know, I'm not terribly confident at this stage. Okay, yeah, because and also a lot of the indications from what's what is going to probably come through is that FMS will be the king, and sure we'll we'll wind up getting they'll make decisions we'll wind up going down these paths, but a lot of it's going to be FMS from the states, and that's not that good for local. No, it's not, and but I, I think uh, balance is the key. So you know, you would have noticed that coverage last week about the new Blackhawks arriving. You know, I think we talked about this in the last podcast that the US has a continuous Blackhawk build program, and so when the uh, uh, when the ADF uh, you know ordered its Blackhawks seven or eight months ago, uh, Jeremy King was able to go to the US and sign the fuselage of our first helicopter. <laughs> yes, yeah, in a couple of weeks, you know, pretty amazing uh, situation to be in, and. Now we've had the first couple of helicopters arrive and, and they'll keep coming and that capability will be extant in this country, you know, pretty quickly, uh, So, which, which is good news. And, and that, to me, that's the that, that's something that we could never do here, right? So that, that's a benefit of FMS. Um, high Mars, you know, I think there's opportunities here in Australia for Australian companies to produce the launches for High Mars. Lockheed Martin, you know, is experiencing supply chain difficulties in the U.S., we could produce the launches here. The vehicles are made by Oshkosh. Um, you know, that's another, you know, opportunity which comes from FMS. Um, so I don't think it's all it's all one way. But, you know, as we've discussed before, you know, our view is that the DSR um, is a platform strategy. It's not a defence strategy. And I think the CDF's comment a few weeks ago, uh, which might have been at the ADM Summit actually, you know, that the DSR is the government's plan, not the not the ADF's plan, uh, was an interesting comment. And, you know, I know, I know the CDF well, and it's an un, it was an unusually frank comment for him. Um, but I think it does, you know, really, um, you know, indicate that it is a start point, but it's not necessarily the end state. And so I think that's what the IIP is struggling with is, you know, what does the end state look like? Yeah, and FMS does seem to work quite well so long as you stick to exactly what the Americans have. As soon as you start to bring others in, we the C-27J, for example, that's not what the Americans have anymore because they don't have it and yeah, that's all the problems we're having there. So, yeah. But you mentioned GUIO and you mentioned HIMARS and that does bring up uh, the recent Osman announcement, as you said building now is that launches only or is that the whole missiles the smarts are they going to license that here we build a lot so uh, look my sense is that there are that um we are going to be building stuff here i think it's unlikely that so, so i think if you think about a missile there are you know and i'm a simple inf- former infantryman so you know I, I look at these things you know through very fairly simple lens but there's some stuff in those missiles which are highly technical. Um, it's unlikely that they, that they would be constructed here, I, I would think. But there's a whole lot of stuff in a missile which isn't, you know, like the casing and the motors and the, probably the propellant um, and maybe the explosive Warhead. as well. Yeah, you know. So I think a lot of it could, could be built here, and I think that's the plan. Um, and I think that as part of the GUIO, as part of what Leon Phillips will be doing is, okay, what's the in- industry strategy for GUIO? 
um, which will obviously be supplied, uh, you know, providing supply chain capability to uh, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin in the first instance as they move to, you know, to, to do that here. The thing which I think is emerging for me, which I don't think any of us tr truly realised, was the limited the limit to capacity in the US in its supply chain, not just in defence equipment, but across the board. And we're starting to see that. And if you talk to uh, the guys who manufacture submarines, for instance, you talk to HII or Electric Boat, they'll tell you that, the, that, that the, their difficulty is not capacity in the shipyard, it's capacity in the supply chain. And so really the OSMIN announcement, I think, is, is as much a recognition that the US is, is relatively maxed out as far as its capacity is concerned and a recognition that there is significant capacity here in Australia. And then the challenge becomes either by the government or the department or both about how you unlock that capacity. And, and, and frankly, I think that uh, they're both going to struggle in understanding how to do that. So, um, uh, you know, an industry's capacity to help them think about that is is a challenge as well. So, um, you know, we'll 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 see how that you know pans out. But I think we will be building missiles here, and I don't think they'll all be for the ADF. And I think that's good news. Mm. And just interesting to look at. Okay, so under the Americans supporting them, it'll be building a, a large chunk of the, air, the the missile and helping there, but not the smarts. Whereas, uh, as we saw Richard Cho standing there saying, hey, if you want your long-range missiles and all that, we've got this huge range and we'll license the smarts <laughs> to you. So quite a different approach and, and could, be, could be very important if we're unable to get the smarts from the US to put in our, in our missiles. Yeah, look, all I would say is that the Hanwha facility is uh, the the um, the actual area that Hanwha has in its facility is quite large. The number of buildings that it's, it's chosen to build at this stage is relatively modest given the footprint. So, you know, I think that now we've made a decision uh, on running with the Hanwha vehicle, then I think there will be other opportunities for uh, Hanwha Defence Australia as far as its its other product sets. And I know that um, I noticed that there has been quite a bit of commentary about the a number of those missile systems that Hanwha uh, is able to bring here, which you know the poles of uh, look as though they've um, uh, that you know they're looking on quite favourably. You know, I think, you know, to come back to Ryan Mattel, obviously missed out on the Land 403 decision. You know, we, we need to remember that they've got a, an ammunition production facility and joint venture with NIA, uh, which I think is a fantastic uh, capability, which is underutilised by the ADF at the moment. In fact, it's, it's completely unused by the ADF currently. All those, all those 155 rounds are going to Europe uh, to German customers, you know, I, I think that's likely to change. And at Ryan Mattel as well, as a company, has a lot of other capability that it can bring to the table. And so, you know, I think what we're – the reason I mention that is I think what we're seeing is the emergence of what uh, the immediate uh, supply environment looks like. So you're going to have um, Lockheed Martin and, and uh, Raytheon in a missile space. You're going to have Hanwha. It's going to be able to do some additional work as well. Uh, we're going to buy some, you know, more gear from them. 
uh, vehicles and, and other things and, and maybe some uh, launches as well. And then it, from Rheinmetall, you've got uh, ammunition and, um, uh, you know, Josh Stewart's running that business for Rheinmetall. He's a great guy. Um, you know, so, you know, there's I, th- I think we've got the, the start of what looks like quite a useful footprint. It's just the way in which it's, that is all wound up, I think, becomes, you know, part of the challenge as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely, uh, definitely an interesting challenge there, and and see how that flows out to industry, if at all. But uh, shifting gears once again, uh, so just changing tack and shifting gears, etc. New Zealand Defence Force seems quite happy with its MRH ninety helicopters, but we're calling them in the press troubled or worse. Uh, what have they done that work, makes those airframes work for them that doesn't seem to have worked for us? Look, I, I, I'm not a helicopter expert. Grant, so um, look, I, I'm unsure. What what I'm guessing though is that um, maybe their MRH 90s have, have a lower level of uh, use than ours do. I think that probably helps. Uh, they don't they don't have to operate in, in conditions which are so. Sorry, I should go back. The New Zealand conditions are more like European conditions for which the helicopter was designed. Their use in Australia meant that they were operating in conditions which were much more difficult. And if you look at the, back into the Middle East, you know, when we were operating there and look at the French and the Germans and others who were operating in that environment, they, they had similar issues with the performance of their platforms as we had. And, uh, of course, we had, you know, the tragedy on Talisman Sabre with one of those airframes, um, you know, no one knows what's happened, but you know, I guess that'll that'll be revealed in the in in the fullness of time. But you know, I just think that uh, we've got two completely different operating environments, two completely different operating tempos. Uh, you know, we've had a recent announcement by the Kiwis about a new defence strategy, which I think you know sees them maybe sort of responding more more forcefully and more you know honestly towards the challenges that exist in the indo pacific and i think we should all welcome that um but um at, at, you know and a, and a renewed commitment by the adf to help uh the kiwis uh, with their journey as well which i think is fantastic but yeah you know i i, I think that if you want to understand what's happening with the kiwi mrh 90s i don't think it's that difficult but you know, I, I, you know, I think we've made a terrific decision. Um, that money is is banked now, so those Blackhawks and Apaches are on their way, and will be a much better defence force for those airframes, for having those airframes and operating them than we have been in the past. Excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to say on Army's restructuring and the other topics we've covered today? You know, I think before the DSR was released grant you know we thought that was going to be uh, busy but i i think the defense environment since the dsr has been released it just seems to me to be insanely uh, busy uh, with all you know with everything that's going on um you know my concern is that um you know we've got good people in the adf uh, you know we can rely on them to make the best decisions that are, that are possible but i do worry that uh, with, so, with so many balls in the air that, you know, that we might drop one or two as, as we go along. And I'm just hopeful that uh, given the threat that we can continue to move at speed, 
to give to ensure that you know the Australian people have the defence force that they deserve and that they need for those challenges that sort of sit before us over the next you know three you know four or five years, which I think are going to be uh, unparalleled uh, you know in our history. So um, you know, he's hoping that uh, we get it all right. You know, Australian industry has an important part to play, and my hope is that both the government and the department sort of open the doors to industry in a way which we haven't seen before. And we haven't seen it yet, but we've got the industry de- defence strategy coming uh, towards the end of the year, and it's going to be a very important document for all of us in industry. Well, Mark Stevens of Arakan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mark. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.